Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 369 with Dan Schaubel. And Dan is talking about what it takes to get back to human, how we're using technology appropriately and inappropriately, and what should be done optimally. So you'll learn, one, how to set career expectations, two, some tips for increasing productivity and improving work relationships, and three, how and when to use technology to improve those relationships. So if you would like to take a look at the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, You'll find that on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep369. While at awesomeatyourjob.com, I encourage you to check out some cool stuff. One cool thing I'd point you to is the Gold Nugget email list, which summarizes the wisdom from Dan and all the 368 guests who've come before him and those to come after in a bite-sized email you can read in about two to five minutes, as well as access to the vault, the archive of all such summarized tidbits. That's called the Gold Nuggets over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now, here's Dan's story. Dan Chabelle is a New York Times bestselling author, partner and research director at Future Workplace, and the founder of both Millennial Branding and WorkplaceTrends.com. Through his companies, he's conducted dozens of research studies and worked with major brands, including American Express, GE, Microsoft, Virgin, IBM, Coca-Cola, and Oracle. Dan has interviewed over 2,000 of the world's most successful people, including Warren Buffett, Anthony Bourdain, Jessica Alba, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and me one time. So that's pretty cool to be in that lineup. He's the host of the Five Questions with Dan Chabelle podcast, where he interviews a variety of world-class humans by asking them five questions in less than 15 minutes. In addition, he's written countless articles for Forbes, Fortune, Time, The Economist, Harvard Business Review, and others that have a combined generated 15 million page views. Dan has been profiled or quoted at over 2,000 media outlets and has been recognized on several lists, including Inc. and Forbes magazines, 30 Under 30. Big thanks to Dan for sharing his wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Now, here's Dan. Dan, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. I am very excited to be here, my friend. Well, I want to hear the story. You recently conquered a fear of heights in Costa Rica. What's the backstory there? I was really anxious going to Costa Rica. I was watching all of these videos on YouTube of people canyoning and ziplining and I had so much fear. I've been afraid of heights my whole life. Oh, my friends that I went with, they've done some crazy things in their life. You know, my friend Pete, he has ziplined in various places in the world. Mm. And then my other friend, my we call him the crazy Russian, Slava. <laughs> he's he's bungee jumped. He's you know jumped out of a helicopter. He's done some crazy stuff. And so just going with them and knowing that I would be really pushed out of my comfort zone gave me a lot of anxiety. And I have a lot of anxiety as is. So it just, you know, it up a notch. And so I finally just gained the courage. I'm like, let's do this. You know, when am I going to go to Costa Rica again? So we land the next morning, we go canyoning first. And it was really intense because <laughs> when you go in this canyon, you have to propel down these massive waterfalls. The first waterfall is you know, like eight feet, but the second one is almost directly after that, and that's 150 feet. Yeah. And I've never done this before. And what I did was I went first because I knew the more I would wait, the higher my anxiety would be, the more stressed I'd be. So I would always go first, and that's how I got around that fear is, hey, I'm just going to get this over with. 
And in many ways, that's how I've, I've handled a lot of situations in life. I've just replicated it in terms of to, to beat fear. And so a few days later, we went zip lining, and that was this is the the biggest and tallest zip lines in all of Costa Rica. I think one of the zip lines was a mile long. And they would tell us that if you get stuck in the zip line because you know you're not going fast enough, then you have to crawl yourself back. <laughs> Maybe it happens a few times a year. But to me, that builds up so much fear because what if I'm the person? What if I'm stuck and like I'm looking down and you know you see you know, the rainforest and the jungle and you're like, oh my god, like let me live through this. And so what was what really helped with the anxiety was going before my friends, but because there was a 75 year old woman and five little kids who were ziplining with us. So I'm like, oh, if they can do it, I can do it. Oh yeah, that's encouraging. When the elderly pull it off, great year. And so you did it. And how do you feel? I feel good, but I'm also not ready to sign up for it again either. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, it also sounds like you got your hands kind of full. You've got multiple roles going on, founder of Millennial Branding and WorkplaceTrends.com and a partner and research director at Future Workplace. So could you orient us a little bit? What is your job, your thing? What do you do? Over the past month, I've really come to the conclusion that I'm just a curious person who asks a lot of questions, right? Let's start there. Because since 2012, I've conducted over 40 research studies, including this new one for Back to Human, new book with Virgin Pulse. So I've raised hundreds of thousands of dollars, surveyed over 90,000 people in over 20 countries, and I do all the questionnaires. So I've had the thought, think of many, 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 many questions through that. And then I've also interviewed over 2,000 people one-on-one. -on -one. These are anywhere from professors to authors, to astronauts to, you know, Warren Buffett, Donald Trump, a wide variety of people. Uh, and each of those interviews is five questions. It's really about learning as much as I can from people and through data and create and those stories through the media, through books and through everything else I do. So that's, that's the core of what I do is ask questions. And I'm also, you could say an entrepreneur. I'm a partner research director of Future Workplace. So I do all the research through them, but we also put on four events every year, two on the East Coast of America, two on the West Coast. And these events are for heads of HR companies that we serve. And we also have an AI course and we do workshops as well. And aside from that, I'm a founder of Millennial Branding. So that's where I do a lot of speaking and books and, and spokesperson uh, deals. We're working with companies to get their message across to people my age. I've done a lot of the media. I've written over 2,000 articles. So I'm, I'm somebody who has worked since I was 13. Uh, my first business was sophomore year of college. I had eight internships between high school and my graduated college. I worked for three and a half years at a company called EMC Corporation, which is now EMC Dell. Dell purchased them. And I created a first ever social media position there. And that's because outside of work, I was really early into blogging. I started my own everything around personal branding. Fast Company profiled me and, it, and that, through that, EMC hired me internally for the social media position. So if you go to twitter.com slash EMC and facebook.com and all those, I did all the original social media accounts back in 2007. So it was really early on in all of this. I've watched the whole thing play out. And then over time, I've, I've continued to write. My, my really true love is on, I like to focus on organizational behavior, 
the, uh, you know, how robots and humans collide in the workplace. I am very interested in work culture and the labor market at a high level, right? So I like to see from a macro level what's in the economy, what's happening in the world, are more people being hired, are people losing jobs because of technology, what's retention rates look like, you know, what, who's hiring what. I love all that, right? Because from a high level, I know where the market is, so I can give better advice of from an individual level of investor time, what they should major in, what skills they need to develop. But also from a corporate standpoint, I understand what skills people have and what they're looking for in their employers. For instance, people my age, 34 or younger, they're looking for flexibility in the workplace. So through the research, through conversations I have, I'm able to make those recommendations. So the goal really, my mission is to help my generation through their whole career path from student to CEO. The first book, Me 2.0, helped them get from college to first job. The second book, Promote Yourself, was first job to management. And then Back to Human is a leadership book for the generation because over 40% of people my age have a management title and above, and about 5% have a director title and above. So to me, this is the best time to help engage the next generation of leaders. Um, and you know, for me, myself, I, I consider myself a leader in the space. I've, I've been supporting this generation since uh, you know, the early days, the early 20s. Well, cool. All right. Well, that's plenty. And so what's your book, Back to Human, all about here? The thesis is that technology has created the illusion of connection when in reality, by overusing or misusing it, we are isolating ourselves. We're more lonely, less engaged, and less committed to our teams and organizations. Mm-hmm. People can all relate to this. The average person checks their phone every 15 minutes. We tap our devices over 2,600 times a day. We're constantly using the technology. We're not even thinking about using it. And you see this everywhere we go. Now, even though the book hits technology really bad, it it does it to make bigger points about how we're using it and when we're using it. For instance, you you could use technology in order to discover people who might live in your neighborhood or your city so you can connect with them. But when you connect with them, try and do it in a meaningful way on the phone or in person so you get to really know someone and form a, a stronger bond. And this happens in the workplace too. You know, if we're constantly using and abusing technology and thinking it's going to solve all of our problems, it's really not it's going to actually isolate us and bring us further apart. You cannot solve an argument between two employees by texting. That's just not going to cut it. And <laughs> it creates misunderstanding. So one face-to-face interaction is more successful than 34 emails back and forth. So instead of emailing someone constantly, hoping they understand you and know what to do next, all you have to do is you know, walk four feet and actually talk to that person. So because of the overuse and misuse of technology in our society and the workplace, people are using it as a crutch and avoiding face-to-face conversations that are necessary in order to establish relationships that are required for long-term success and happiness. And can you point to, I guess, a little bit of the mechanism or the line of causality or the evidence that says that, hey, this technology is, in fact, causing isolation and disengagement? Yeah, it's actually in the study I did with Virgin Pulse, 2,000 managers and employees in 10 countries, we found that almost 50% of employees' day is spent using technology to communicate over in person. And what's happening with those employees is that they feel lonely always or very often as a result of overusing that technology. This is a big issue, especially in a world where it's much more dispersed. 
you have more people working from home than ever before. So a third of the workforce works from home, but two thirds of those people are disengaged because if you're always working from home full time, and I work from home, it's been almost eight years working from home, you can become isolated and lonely because you're not get, having human contact. So what's really fascinating we've focused on all the benefits of working from home and tons of research around the benefits that you get, the freedom of flexibility, you save commuting costs, but not enough people are talking about the drawbacks. And the big drawback is that you feel isolated, lonely, and potentially disengaged. So we have bigger conversations around the full picture of this because sometimes people lie to themselves and not, you know, consciously thinking about how working from home isolates them and impacts their health and well-being, which, you know, impact productivity. It's like everyone talks about the glory of, of loving what you do and being passionate about, uh, passionate about what you do for work. But if you're really passionate about what you do, it can become an addiction and actually isolate you from others because all you're doing is work. So there's, there's the good and bad for everything. And part of what I want to do with this book is to reveal and make people more conscious of how and where they're using technology and, and to try and make better decisions about that. Yeah, I guess what I'm wondering is the extent to which the working remotely thing is causality versus correlation in so far as, you know, some people who want to work from home are already aren't super attached, you know, to their, their coworkers, like they won't miss like, oh, I'm so sad that I will not see these people on a regular basis as opposed to, you know, it's causing it. It's like, oh man, I'm out of the loop. So are you talking about people who are working entirely remotely or sort of the once or twice a week work from home crowd? I'm talking about entirely working remote. Gotcha. If you work remote, you're much less likely to want a long-term career at your company because you don't have emotional attachment to the people you work with. You're mm -hmm. never there. You never, you're out of sight, you're out of mind, which actually limits your career prospects. I, it's like Jack Welch used to always say when he was the CEO of GE, you know, FaceTime matters. You know, if you're out of sight, if you're out of mind, you're, you're less likely to get a promotion. Mm -hmm. Okay, gotcha. So these are fully remote workers. Yeah, so I'm talking about a fully remote worker and a third of the population works remote always or very often. So it's, it's happening. Look at a company like Aetna over half the workforce works remote full time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've, other companies fall into this as well. And that's why you see there's a big backlash too. You have Yahoo, Best Buy, Reddit, um, and various other companies like Honeywell that have forced employees to come back into the office. Now, they've forced employees to come back to the office full-time, whereas Aetna says, hey, you can work remote full-time. And what I'm saying is more or less what you're going to get to is, let's do extremes here. <laughs> mm -hmm. Let's kind of meet in the middle and let's customize you know, work based on your individual needs. So it's crazy. Like I interviewed a hundred young leaders for my book and at least seven of them are having kids this year. Um, there's a million new millennial moms per year. So if you're having kids, you need some degree of flexibility, right? Mm -hmm. And as if someone's single or someone's older, they're, the benefits they need and the work they one is going to be a little bit different, right? You're going to care much more about retirement benefits if you're 60 than 23. You're going to care about flexibility in some regard, regardless of age. But if you're younger, maybe you want flexible hours or telecommuting. Whereas if you're older, you know, you want, you know, some other degree of flexibility. Like if you have kids, you want parental maternal leave. That's becoming a really hot 
uh, benefit for for many. You know, Netflix gives unlimited. So I think it depends where you are in your career life cycle. You know, uh, what you're looking for at that time and what your needs are, and then having a company and a manager step up and really lead by exhibiting empathy and understanding your situation, trying to create a good situation for you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, so then digging into some of the content of the book, you know, you sort of suggest starting off by focusing in on fulfillment. What does that mean and look like in practice? And what are some of the alternatives that people focus on instead? Great question. Life is too short at work, too many hours not to be fulfilled at work. The average work week is 47 hours for a full-time salaried employee and 43 for an hourly worker. We're spending so much time at work. Anytime I stand in front of an audience of 50 to 6,000 recently, uh, I always say, how many of you respond to work emails on vacation? And it's like 99% say they do. Mm-hmm. So we're always kind of working now. And there's an expectation, especially in the United States, that we're you know, working 24-7, <laughs> which can be unhealthy and lead to burnout. But the reality is if you do not like your work or you have a toxic work environment where you don't get along with your colleagues and manager, it's going to affect your personal life. This is why I put such an emphasis on improving the workplace, making people have healthier work environments because if you don't have a good employee experience, it's bad for the company and it's it could be bad for your relationship with the people you're closest with because you're going to be complaining about work outside of work all the time. Right. Yeah, I put a huge emphasis on this. And what I said in the book is you really have to focus on your fulfillment first. It's like if you're on a plane, they always say, you know, take care of yourself before you, you know, there's going to be a crash, take care of yourself before, you know, your fellow passengers. Same thing with fulfillment. You got to get your stuff right because then you'll be optimistic. You'll be happy. You'll be able to inspire and support people at a higher level. So you got to get your stuff right first. Um, before you help others. And the best way to start doing this is defining what makes you fulfilled. And think about you know, what you've enjoyed in the past, what you think you're good at, your values, what your previous accomplishments and experiences tell you. Really zone in on you know, what you're supposed to be doing. And by the way, this, is, this doesn't happen in one day. It's not like you wake up magically, you know, what makes you fulfilled. It's being thoughtful, taking notes. A lot of people keep journals now. I think that's really smart to write down how you feel by when you do certain activities. You know, really narrowing that down is so important. And then, you know, I think what happens in our society is people get distracted by technology. They get derailed from their own fulfillment. They try and live up to the expectations of others when we really have to take a step back and focus on ourselves and then our team second. Okay, well, a couple things I want to dig into there. One, I'm a sucker for data. So that 47-hour figure, so this is in the United States, those who are full-time salaried position. Yep. And that does not include the commute. That is just straight up work time. Straight up work time. And that's by Gallup. That's a Gallup study from uh, 2014. Okay, gotcha. And I'm wondering if it's the mean or the median, but I'll look it up on my own. Either way, it's striking. 47 is a lot more than 40. <laughs> oh, and here's another one. A third people work on weekends. I'm a data nerd, by the way. I've reviewed, I'm getting closer to over 8,000 research reports since I was a recent college graduate. So I'm like really invested in this. I've cataloged all the research over the, over the years because, because 
I'll tell you why I like research so much because uh, when I was younger, there was so much ageism because I had a career blog. Mm -hmm. People were like, what do you know about having a great career? You're 22. So I started early and like I learned how to internships, get a job, sell myself, build my personal brand. I knew all that early on. It's still a lot of ageism. So I used data in order to combat ageism. Hey, you don't believe me? I'm going to point to data that you trust. So now you be more seriously. So I always use data as a way to deflect ageism. And then in 2012, I had a great opportunity to analyze 4 million millennial Facebook profiles. That campaign went well. And then I've just been addicted to data ever since because I really, it's almost like you're an archaeologist and you're digging up the next dinosaur bone. For me, it's I want to find something new, discover it and bring it into the world and, and distribute it to others so it benefits them from a corporate standpoint, from an individual standpoint. I think data is extremely valuable in today's society when, you know, when everyone's thinking about the ROI of everything and also just to really identify what's really happening in the pulse of the workplace. Oh yeah, I'm right with you there. I don't remember who said it, but I think it was when I was learning to become a consultant at Bain and they said, the only thing you could really rely on to be heard and credible and persuasive when you look so young and don't know diddly yet <laughs> about the industry is a fact. It's like, yep, sure enough, if that's a fact is a fact. And they go, huh, okay, well, then that's something that we're going to work with a little bit. And as opposed to, you know, your opinion and you're pontificating on how things should be when um, you're not yet trusted for your pontifications. So I'm right with you there on the data. And so tell me, when it comes to focusing on fulfillment, could you maybe set a little bit of a expectation on the grand scheme of fulfillment? You know, I think it's fair to say that no job will fulfill your every, you know, wish, want, desire and need for that to bring about fulfillment and happiness in your life. At the same time, I think there is plenty of room to keep the bar higher than, well, you know, it's a job, it's a job and they pay me. So what do you think is sort of acceptable and to expect from a career versus you know, asking for too much or too little? What I would say is it's trial and error. And what's really interesting that I've been thinking about over the past year is no one has this all figured out. We're all tweaking our careers. We're pivoting. We're learning more about ourselves as we experience new jobs and new projects. For me, it took me a, it took me a while to figure out what my mission was. I started young, of course, that helped. But I didn't really put all the pieces together in my head until maybe three years ago when I came up with my mission statement that I put on my website. Um, I, I, and, and I, you know, I now say I love research more than anything, anything else. And so that's why I'm like the chief question officer in a way, because that's a really key part of research in, in many, many ways. So I think you identify what makes you fulfilled based on self-reflection, based on feedback from others, and just being around people who give candid feedback not ones who are yes men or yes women, people who are going to be real honest with you. And so when I interact with like, you know, pretty successful people in my network, a lot of them don't get the best advice and get the best feedback because they're getting complimented all the time because they have, you know, leverage in their in their careers. I stand out because I'm willing to give them criticism in the most genuine way possible. And because of my track record, they take it seriously. And then, you know, they'll take some of that advice to heart. It. Uh, I think I think you just need the right people around you who are going to be honest. And if they see you doing something wrong or or they see you're unhappy, to just have them be honest and be like, oh, I see that you're unhappy. This is not exactly what you should be doing or how you're doing it. Sometimes 
you might be in the right position, but doing the work in the wrong way, which will turn you off from doing the work and make you feel unfulfilled. A lot of people give up quick, especially in today's society. Everyone wants instant gratification. They build up all this in their head, you know, that this job's going to be perfect and they're going to be so happy and they're unwilling to work to ensure that they have, you know, maximize their day, fulfills their personal and professional needs and are fulfilled overall. So I think that you, you can't just rely on the company to be fulfilled. You need to be responsible for doing that and working within your company to make that happen. And that could mean doing projects outside of what you're hired to do. It could mean that you change the nature of your work and, you know, working in a lounge versus a cubicle, you know, because maybe that gives you more inspiration. It could be you changing how you get work done or who you work with. So maybe your group is not the right team for you at work as a leader. Maybe you need to manage a different team. And things change too. What if your employee quits? You know, then you got to hire someone else. Or what if you get laid off? Then you're looking for another job. Then you got to maybe reinvent yourself because people aren't hiring those with your skill set that was valuable three years ago, but it's not now. So it's, it's constant work in progress. I think people should do their best. I think people should reflect often and surround themselves with people who will be candid with them. Mm-hmm. Okay, lovely. Thank you. Well, so I want to talk a little bit about some of your perspectives on how you're doing the work. You know, let's talk about the work-life balance. You say it's a myth and we should look at work-life integration instead. What's the full story here? Yeah, just based on how work is being done these days, you know, it's happening in the office, it's happening remote, it's working, happening at co-working spaces, at coffee shops, it's all over the place. It's very decentralized. And so it's hard to know when you know, to cut off work and when to do personal things is becoming ever more blurred. And our personal and professional lives are very blurred because of technology. You know, again, what I was saying before, it's like you're kind of always working even if you're not at a physical office. And because of that, we have to, we need a new solution because this is no longer effective like it was for our parents and our grandparents. So what we need to think of is work-life integration. Jeff Bezos calls this work-life harmony. Uh, this, the four, now former CEO of Campbell Soup, when I interviewed her, she called this work-life integration as well. And so, so has several other people in my, in my network and I have talked to because it's all about taking the responsibility and accountability to say, okay, these are the five personal and professional things I need to do this day and then carve out your schedule. So you're able to do those two, three, four or five things, right? So it's on you figure out how to integrate the things that you need to do and fulfill you personally and professionally, not anyone else, because only you know this. And I think that's really important. Like for me, I'll be doing this podcast and then in two hours, I'm going to an event and there I'm meeting friends there. So even though, you know, I'm going there for professional reasons, it's also to be with my friends, you know, almost like as an excuse to see them. And so I'm constantly trying to figure out how to parlay my personal and professional life together. Like I'm going to LA and when I'm there, I'm going to be doing some media for the book. But at the same time, I've already contacted some of my close friends who live there or arranging dinners and lunches and get togethers. So it's, it's constantly, you know, figuring out how to make it work on a regular basis and blocking off time so that you're fulfilled in both areas. Mm-hmm. 
Any pro tips on any sort of powerful requests to make of bosses or boundaries to set that for many people can make a world of difference? This needs to almost happen when you're being interviewed. You know, just asking questions about from the employer standpoint, you know, what they're looking for in work-life balance, you know, and then from the individual standpoint, just talking about the type of environment you work best in, you know, if you really work well remote and then they were, and then the hiring manager is like, well, we don't let anyone work remote even for an hour here. It's probably not the company you want to work for. So it's really having the conversations before you even start work so that once you know what you're able to do and you accept that job, the expectations will hopefully be met rather than you know, hoping it all works out when you already have the job, try and do it as early as possible in the, in, the, in the hiring conversation. And if you already have a job and you're like, okay, I got to have this conversation, it's it's really about blocking off time with your manager and just seeing what the possibilities are and what the comfort level is. Because at Aetna, for instance, they let employees work remote full time, but they have to be at the office for the first six months to prove themselves. Gotcha. You got to earn the right to work remote full time by showing that you can take the responsibility and do the work and deliver results. Mm-hmm. Okay, gotcha. Well, I also want to get some of your takes on productivity, shared learning, optimal collaboration. Could you give us some of your favorite tips and do's and don'ts in this world? Oh boy, this is a big one. The shared learning chapter is becoming very popular because I think there's so much learning that needs to happen now. You look at the way skills are now, it, you know, the, the average relevancy of a skill is only five years. So in order to keep up with the fast-paced business world we live in, we have to rely and support each other by sharing what we know openly. You know, being a hog of information is going to lead to a shorter-term career that's not going to be as fulfilling. If you're more open to share and you're more open to accept the knowledge that other people have and train them, but also ask for help, you're more likely to succeed because you know, everything's in real time right now. And it's and information's moving fast. Things are changing. Companies are being acquired, merged. You know, there's layoffs. There's, there's uh, new skills that are entering the arena, like artificial intelligence skills. And you know, if you're able to work as a team collectively and lead a team where people are just helping each other, that team is going to hold strong. They'll have stronger relationships, which will lead to higher performance. Uh, the other thing I'll say is, for optimizing your productivity, uh, you know. Again, like technology can be good or bad, but when it comes to optimization, you can do a lot of things that save time, like use conference room booking uh, systems or even your own calendar to block off time on people's schedules so that you have time to meet people, you know, be prepared for meetings so that you can facilitate or catch up with your colleagues. I think that's really important. Uh, Like I was saying before with work-life integration, Use your calendar to block off time for meals and for breaks. You know, for every 45 minutes or so work, you should take a 10 to 15 minute break. That's what the research shows. I I think that you need to do what's right for you, but there are certain best practices that can help you, like having a base environment that's optimized so that you avoid distractions and you can concentrate on the work at hand. But then also getting out. A lot of people have lunch at their desk and they should be having lunch with their colleagues so they can form stronger relationships. And again, this this really has to do with the pressure that employees are being put on right now. 
because people were working harder than ever before for no additional money. So there's this constant anxiety that people have that they have to always be working, but that leads to burnout and lower productivity. So I, I would avoid that. Instead, I would really think about how you can at least one or two times a week have lunch with your colleagues just so yours they're seeing you they're hearing you you can bounce ideas off them the best ideas i always get are when i'm talking with other people i literally get my best ideas in conversations right so if you're you know staring at your computer all day you're probably not going to be as creative but if you are in new surroundings with new diverse people it's going to inspire you mhm absolutely and i would say you know training people is really important sharing articles among your teammates. Anytime I see, you know, an article that would benefit my team, like, you know, with the, with artificial intelligence, I see it and I share it. I don't even think twice because I know what my partners want and I just keep delivering, right? Because then they're going to be more prepared for their meetings. Every morning I've had the same habit, which I think is extremely effective and what some of your listeners could take advantage of. I review all the latest research and trends in my space every day. So then when I have meetings during the day or I'm speaking or I'm doing something, um, or I'm looking at things that I learned about four hours before, I become extremely relevant because always looking at these trends regularly and things are changing so fast. So I almost can't avoid doing that now. But by learning a lot, by sharing that knowledge and keeping up to pace with things that are changing, you're able to offer more, be more relevant and smarter in your field. Okay, cool. Well, Dan, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. Yeah, I think what I'm trying to really do is make people more conscious of how they're using technology, not disregard human interactions. The biggest thing that gets in the way of person-to-person human interactions is email. We're sending way too many emails and many times it just doesn't make sense. <laughs> and so you see a lot of my friends, they have like hundreds of emails they haven't even answered, which many could, could have been avoided by just one phone call, to be honest. And so, you know, we've dropped phone calls, we've dropped voicemails for all for texting. And so we're sending so many texts every day and getting us anywhere. Not all progress is true progress, in my opinion. And that's not to say technology can't be good. You know, I, I, early in my career, I used technology to forge an incredibly big, vast, great network. But it wasn't until I started to meet those individuals in person where the real relationships, you know, prospered and, and became something more noteworthy. And, you know, for this book, when I was interviewing 100 leaders, it started off as me interviewing them, then us having a Facebook group to just share updates. But then what I did was I used the Facebook group to meet them in person all across the country and they came on book tour with me. And I think that is a good case of going back to human where the technology was used in the right way. It's used for initial contact and used in order to get everyone on the same page with the you know same vision and then using in-person conversations and phone calls to get to, to really get to know people to go deeper with them. All right. Gotcha. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I think the best quote in the book is when you replace emotional connections with digital ones, you lose the sensation of being present and the feeling of being alive. Uh, Other quotes that I really love that I've said over the years are learn from yesterday, live for today and build your own future and invest in yourself before uh, expecting others to invest in you. Um, 
in terms of books, I'd recommend books that my friends, my friend, Dream Team is by Shane Snow, Creative Curve by Alan Gannett, Super Connector by Scott Gerber and Ryan Paw. You know, these are all people I know personally, so it's it's easy to recommend books because you you trust them and what they've written. And uh, I would say for the biggest challenge is next time you're in a meeting, have you and teammates all their phone in the middle of the table for the entire session and see what happens when you do that. You know, see what conversations take place, see what ideas are brought to the, uh, you know, brought up, take notes and then compare that to a meeting where, you know, phones were accessible and people were using them. Okay, great. Thank you. And if folks want to learn more and get in touch, where would you point them? Yeah, you could go take the self-assessment that's in the book. It's called workconnectivityindex.com. It measures the strength of your team relationships. You can also listen to my podcast, Five Questions with Dan Shawbell, where I interview all sorts of people from Condoleezza Rice to Ann Jones, Richard Branson, in uh, Five Questions in Under 10 Minutes. So quick, but you learn a lot by listening. For everything else, you can buy Back to Human on Amazon or Barnes & Noble's local bookstore and you can go to danshawbell.com to follow all my research and articles. All right, cool. Well, Dan, thanks so much for taking this time and good luck with Back to Human and all that you're up to here. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, a couple of things that Dan shared that really stuck out to me are one, that 47-hour statistic, which is striking. If you think about the impact of seven extra hours and where that's coming from, is it coming from your sleep and is that kind of putting you behind? Is it curtailing some family time? And are they seven hours that you enjoy? Could a more productive, efficient selection of your activities or approach to doing those activities end up slashing the time back down to 40? And so that just sort of sparks a lot of interesting questions for me. Take a close look at your calendar and see how that's unfolding there, as well as just to think through when would drop it by and chat and human to human be superior move to email if we all have too much of it and we're kind of overwhelmed by it and we're suffering in, in human relationship connectivity, as Dan suggested, when might you choose to substitute that face-to-face chat in place of an email? Good food for thought from Dan. Hope you dug that more. The show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced is at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F369. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push the subscribe button. You'll hear from our next guest. He is fascinating. His name is Jack Nasher. He is a professor who's quite distinguished as well as a magician or a mentalist, as they're called. And he has got a world of insight into how do we perceive competence and how can you be perceived as being more competent, influencing that equation. Fascinating original stuff I have not heard before. So I hope to catch you there. And peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait.
Auto Trader.